All right, guys, welcome again. And I, I will say right up front, next week, we will not have a research review. I'll be out of town. Um, so as um, kind of a single session, I didn't want to get into a series. Uh, I thought this would be a really, really good topic once I started thinking about the musings of the week between some clients and questions and conversations that, that I've been having. Uh, this, I will say up front, is going to be a little bit of a lighter survey because when we start thinking about compliance and adherence, which are two kind of research terms when it comes to nutrition that I don't like when it comes to the application to actual end user execution because it just sounds so rigid, compliance, adherence, there's so much more nuance and softness, softness to how we we actually uh, find our paths forward, which are not always linear or straightforward. But nonetheless, that's how uh, they talk about it in research. And I have to say, I kind of started looking for some of the harder science stuff, which is show me the way, show me the types of dieting, the the ways to eat, which would lead naturally to better compliance. And, and I I wanted to avoid the obvious, which is we know through very, very clear empirical data, for example, that low-carb or ketogenic diets have the worst record for uh, compliance. They literally force people into more eating disorders and so forth than any other. Uh, so, you know, that's kind of been settled, but I, I thought there might be some tips and tricks along the mechanistic side of dieting that we could talk about that, that would lead to just better ease and, and forward progression for dieters. And what I found instead, though, was just a lot of conversation about um, the the behavioral side. And so let, let me just get into it without any more introductory remarks, because I, I think you're going to see how much information is really here and how it's pretty interesting. But I also didn't want to get super, super deep into just one study. So uh, this first one, the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, um, exercise enhances dietary compliance during moderate energy restriction in obese women. I, I thought this was kind of the pinnacle of everything I could find. And I talk about this with clients a lot. And you know the conversations typically go like this. If I'm speaking with a, a general population client, and we're looking at all things that could impact someone's success. Uh, not everybody loves to exercise. Not everybody loves to train. Not everybody goes to the gym just trying to, you know, have the best workout of their lives every day. For some people, it's a chore and it's difficult. Uh, yet, I think it, it's probably the number one factor in enhancing long-term compliance with nutrition. And even in an acute sense... Uh, th this this resonates with a lot of clients in that on a day that you invest your time in a good workout, there there are some physiological factors that that suppress hunger and you know enhance glucose disposal and so forth, and you just feel better. You get endorphins uh, released from your brain, and a lot of things just go well. But even that is just psychological impact of. I, I did something good today. I, I, I invested in my health. It holds people so much closer to uh, adherence when it comes to nutrition. So I, I found this study. I was kind of curious as to you know how they would calculate this. 
So I, I did pick this one apart a little bit just to show you the design uh, because there are a couple things that are pretty unrelated that I found useful and a little bit funny. So they looked at 13 obese women as a study group and 17 obese women as a control group. Uh, you can see the percent body fat there pretty close, 44, 45%. It was a 12-week program. And the women in the study group, because this was to see if, if exercise would help with compliance, it was just simply three 45-minute supervised cardiovascular sessions, 65% of VO2 max, so pretty moderate. Um, they did calculate that this, this is where it got pretty interesting. They did calculate, this is how you get into the clinical of, or the journal of clinical nutrition, uh, you know, exact metabolic needs. And so they, they made sure they had just a 25% reduction in food. And then this was almost like a social science study, which are often set up to kind of fake people out, but you sign up for this particular study. And then you find out later that it was something you didn't realize was actually being studied. Um, it's one of those things like, if you remember the classic study that, um, you know, was it clergy students, like seminary students were told you have to give this, this lecture, you're going to be graded. We've got this study type thing. You're going to be graded on giving this sermon on the Mount sermon uh, or no, the Good Samaritan, the Good Samaritan. So they thought they were being studied for that. Like you got to go here across campus. You got to give this thing and that's going to be the study. On the way there, they presented them with a moral dilemma of literally having to stop and help somebody or make it on time to give this very important lecture. So they were kind of faked out and they were being studied on what they would actually do in something they didn't anticipate. This was kind of one of those things in that they they wanted to study the uh, the, the adherence um but then what they did was they they they, they had self reporting and so um you you had to report exactly what you consumed how compliant you were but then they also did some analytics on on body comp measurements um with actual, let me see here. It was the, here, here we go. The water isotope dilution changes in body stores. So physiologically, they were able to double check, were these people really eating? Because they got the whole BMR calculations ahead of time doing metabolic cart testing. So they knew exactly what they should be able to anticipate. They had uh, the subjects to compare to each other. So, so here's what they found. Both groups reported consuming close to their prescribed daily intake. So again, the study was all about, we're going to see, you know, you're given a diet, you're given either a control group status or the exercise status, and then you're supposed to tell us with self-reporting, you know, how well you did. So the exercise group, I mean, by 0 0.08, so virtually nothing you know, they said, okay, this is what we were supposed to do. I actually ate a couple calories less. So they reported eating just a little less. Then the non-exercise group reported just a fraction, even less than that, of eating a little bit more. So basically for 12 weeks, all the subjects said we were perfect. Like we nailed it. You told us to do this. It's exactly what we did. But when they were actually calculated for true energy expenditure and, and energy balance, the exercise group were, were at 0.7% higher. Um, 
And so that was that equated to about 167 calories more. And the non-exercise group, we're at 2.3, so 500, or I'm sorry, th those are megajoules, not uh, not percent. So uh, megajoules per day, so about 550 calories. So the funny thing to me is everybody lies, and I'm a nutrition coach, so I know that. I'm the most lied to person on a daily basis, I think, uh, most days. Uh, you know, not always intentionally, but there are just some things we forget once in a while. But, I mean, look, look at that difference in the non-exercise group when this this was this is what they reported up here and then this is what they actually consumed and so the the compliance was gosh what is that about five six times you know higher you know three or four times higher and and so a couple things couple things number one um you know, there is kind of, a, I won't get into the social science stuff, the the embarrassment value and the the biases we have of trying to, you know, look like we are compliant. But at the same time, you know, the, the people who did exercise, this is not actual weight loss, although that was measured as part of them getting the true values and true numbers. Uh, they just complied much, much better. So I'm not, I'm not going to belabor the point. It's, it's, it, it is one of the most important things you can do. If you want to set yourself up for success for long-term weight loss compliance, if you're going to start some kind of an intentional nutrition and weight loss or body composition change plan, that act of, of investing in yourself is very important. Kevin and I were just talking about this uh, before we started in terms of, you know, even some of us, um, you know, who coach others in things like this, we do better when we have coaches ourselves. So here's another thing that's very important that I think you'll recognize. We, we often talk about support that we feel. Uh, this was very specific, although I found it in a lot of different contexts. I, I, I pulled this one up because uh, I thought it was, it was clear to, to go through as a, as a piece together. But effectiveness of family empowerment toward diet compliance and family independence and caring for family members with, with diabetes, a systematic review. Um, this did, by the way, read kind of like a student dissertation um, or thesis. So it was it was really well done, a, a very good review, tons of charts. They went through different studies. Uh, they looked at almost 6,000 studies uh, that were just from this perspective of diabetes, wanted to all be very current. This study was just, or this review was just a couple of years ago. All of the research was in the last 10 years. And for what they wanted to describe, the criteria filter they used only left them with 15 studies. But again, they wanted to look specifically at uh, somebody, and I think there is good translation here, somebody with diabetes, let's, let's say it's a juvenile or even a mom, a dad, uh, somebody, somebody ends up with diabetes, how well are those people going to comply with the types of medical and nutritional standards they need for proper health has a lot to do with the different roles of support that they have around them. And so uh, what, what this particular systematic review uh, ended up discovering is that you could really categorize those who did the best in the planned behavior theory which is, I'll show you here, uh, it's a psychological model that is built around self-efficacy, 
which means just very intentional. It says it in the, the title, planned behavior. And so as a family setting, think about this in just a, the context of losing weights and you are, you've, you've had enough. It's time to, to, you know, draw that line in the sand and we're going to lose weight. We're going to get healthier. We're going to do it this time. And yet you have no support. Matter of fact, maybe you have people in your family who just almost actively don't care. Quite a difference between that and when family members rally around you and ask, how can I support you? And you have this communication. So this theory of planned behavior, this graphic here, what we I feel like we've shown this before a few weeks ago. Um, but it talks about these three types of kind of swirling uh internal context in our brain. So we have our attitudes towards something. Um, I joked in my post about this particular research review about hostility being something that'll come up later. But you know, what is your attitude toward this topic, toward this pursuit? What are the subjective norms? What's What's been normalized in your environment, your immediate family, your culture, your country? Uh, what are what is within your perceived behavioral control? So this is where self-efficacy comes in. So researchers in who who created the, the theory of planned behavior say these three filters here are very very important. You know these are internally guiding mechanisms already in our personal psychology. Uh, how well we think we can actually control our outcome, that perceived behavioral control and self-efficacy. What are kind of the norms? Am I going against the grain? Uh, is this going to be super easy for me? You know, what's my environment like? And then, you know, just those those overall attitudes toward this particular topic, that all feeds into a level of intent, which we all have different levels of intent. Some, some things we think we're going to do, and then we just kind of don't, or we stay very, very highly motivated. So that's that's kind of how that merges into planning something. So that's the planned part, the intent. And then does it actually lead to behavior? And then whatever type of behavior you engage in, whether it supported your, your, your goal, whether you did something aligned with your goal or not, that kind of feeds back right into this loop of, of how you perceive control. If I keep failing, 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 I'm probably going to see my, my self-efficacy um, energy level decrease a little bit. But if I get some wins, then that probably bolsters that a little bit. So that has a lot to do with the environment we have around us, that that level of support. So uh, and again, I'm, I'm going to skip all because this, this was, again, as as a systematic review, it was really, really good. They laid out every single study and they had all kinds of columns of, you know, how they designed the study and whether, you know, what they looked at and then what the results were and, and how they would measure that in some kind of quantitative level um, and qualitative, but they said this, it all depended on to have that support around you. There was, there was a component of educational response, you know, how much you knew about this. Again, this coming down to diabetes, which we can also just think about weight loss and so forth. Um, later, you're going to see something where even people, people do better if we know people who have paved the way for us. Uh, in one study that I'm going to look at, people with congestive heart failure or chronic heart disease of any sort, 
if you if you don't know anybody who has suffered with that or who has died from that, you don't tend to take it quite as seriously. If you see those outcomes, then you tend to take a little bit more seriously. And so that's kind of where that educational component comes in. People who have some semblance of, of higher learning to kind of help the process. Uh, when you do have this positive support, it increases independence. You, so you don't you don't stay mired in a need of support. It doesn't create codependency. It does quite the opposite. When you feel supported and receive support, it builds somebody's independence. Uh, it allows people to become more intentional gradually when they're getting that support. And then the significant influence on perceived behavioral control, that's why it feeds back into, that's why they came back to that planned uh, you know, behavioral model. So that was a, the, the biggest and strongest predictor. So in conclusion, this systematic review found that the family empowerment, that family empowerment can effectively increase the role of family in providing care for patients with diabetes. Several nursing approaches, one of which uses the theory of planned behavior, states that that it effectively increases self-reliance, family roles, dietary. I really like this phrase here. Again, if we can transpose this into normal weight loss in our own even friendship circles or, you know, a partner, children or parents who can help us, just this roles. It, it, when I'm pursuing something, if I have people around me that that have defined roles, like you, you care about me, you're, you're intentionally trying to support my effort to lose weight and become healthier, you know, that becomes a, a really strong indicator. So if exercise we have support. Uh, what about our own internal cueing, self-compassion? Does self-compassion help to deal with dietary relapses among overweight and obese adults who pursue weight loss goals? Um, we talk a lot about this, I feel like, these days. Um, you know, self-care, self-compassion, that kind of thing. Um, so this this brings up a nice little point that I don't think we've ever talked about maybe a couple of times, ecological momentary assessment methodology. So this is where you're asking subjects in real time to report subjective changes. So uh, sometimes researchers do this with kind of a, a text, which so you never know it's coming. It's just like, hey, what are you doing right now? What's your attitude? How do you feel on a scale of one to five or one to 10 rank this? So whatever they're trying to survey, they're checking in with you. That's how they're measuring it. So it's kind of a Likert scale of, of feelings and emotions. Uh, so that's how this was done. 56 adults, 12-week uh, study, a average age around 35, uh, predominantly women, 52 women, four men, uh, BMI, just barely over the clinical obese level. Uh, weight was recorded before and after, but what they were looking at uh, again, was just, you know, their attitudes toward dieting and therefore then how the outcomes actually were in their ultimate success. So what they were asked to record at certain times were, you know, whenever you feel tempted or you have a relapse, a, a lapse in judgment, you fail a little bit on what you were supposed to do, you know, journal that down. We want to know, you know, the, the, the date, the time, the context, what happened. You're doing it all through these diet entries. Uh, they want you to uh, rate those instances in, in a form of self-compassion. So again, this is all laid out in the, the actual paper itself. Um, 
how you feel in that moment of temptation or lapse of, of your intent to continue dieting. Are you ready to just throw up your hands and say, I give up, this is too hard. Or it's like, you know, darn it, I stumbled, but I'm going to keep going. Um, how you feel in terms of your, your actual outcome. Can you do this? Again, self-efficacy coming up. Uh, your reaction level, negative to positive, different types of self-conscious emotions, your, your own perceived um, kind of self-flagellating or, you know, giving yourself some grace there. So this was all part of this over 12 weeks. So these researchers are just kind of getting this picture. And, and I find that these things work pretty well because you get so many data points. You, you can really tell somebody's mood and psychology, even though that will change kind of day to day. You see where people tend to fluctuate from the you know top, middle, and bottom of, of a scale like that. So here's the big question. Hey people... Joe, can I can I jump in real quick before yeah, we move please. on? Yeah, uh, just so people understand the difference in, in terms of in um, some medical context for lapses. So there is a difference between lapse and relapse. So lapse is is typically where you fall off the wagon for a bit, you collect yourself, and you get back on. And a relapse is one where you tend to um, not get back on, just just so that people understand the context of that. Um, it, it's a matter of degrees, and it's it's squishy, you yeah. know. But um, but that, at least that's the way we use it in addiction medicine. That's all. Oh no! Perfect, perfect. Thank you very much, Jen. Uh, so the so the question then will be, um, you know, do we predict? you know, and, and the researchers, of course, had their prediction, you know, who's going to do better. And um, it didn't quite work out how they wanted it to, because they found that self-compassion, people with higher self-compassion did not predict greater weight loss. But they also did have the wherewithal to say this is a 12-week study. And we know from longer studies that the person who does have more self-compassion uh, it is positively related to intentions and self-efficacy to continue dieting, so long-term impact, and negatively related to negative affect reactions to the lapses. Guilt-mediated uh, guilt mediated the associations of self-compassion with intention, self-efficacy, and negative reactions. So in this particular study, which does happen sometime, sometimes, they were not able to say, hey, self-compassion, you know, kicked butt like that's that won the day. Therefore, we should all teach people that for this reason, we can acutely say you're going to lose more weight and 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 kill it. It's not the case. It, it just takes longer, I think. And I, I could point to some of the research reviews we have done, especially from social science perspectives, that the more times you fail, but you have an open-minded learning attitude toward that, that you do keep trying, that's actually a long-term predictor of success. The more times you fail actually predicts better outcomes as long as the caveat exists that you maintain a certain level of self-efficacy. And it may not even be now. It may be next year. It may be five years from now. But just because you hang in the game, you stick around, you get back up, it really does have uh, a longer term uh, impact. So they were able to say that self-compassion may be a powerful internal resource to cultivate when dieters experience inevitable setbacks during weight loss drivings, which could facilitate weight loss perseverance. But 12 weeks, nah, it's it's just too short of a time to see. Uh, so de determinants of 
compliance in men enrolled in a diet and exercise intervention trial, a randomized control study. So this one, again, looked at exercise, but it, there were some social determinants that I thought were interesting here. Uh, this, this gets a little bit, um, I wouldn't say esoteric, but it's, it's a little bit broader than some of the things we looked at so far. And without going into all of the details, because um, it was a pretty simple review, what they wanted to see is who, uh, you know, among people, you know, in, in this particular group, I don't even think I listed it out. Nope, I did not. Um, you know, this particular study, you know, who, who kind of made it and who didn't. And the people who did well, what were some of those, those correlations? So people who smoke, which is a little weird for me because so few adults do now, but that was a, that was a super high correlate to not making it. And I, I guess you could extrapolate that somebody who smokes and then tries to lose weight, I'm not sure you're somebody who's probably in the game for better health anyway. It's probably not an internally guiding value for you. Uh, these particular subjects were were middle-aged and older men who were in the throes of, of chronic heart disease. It's um, what I mentioned a little bit earlier. And so, you know, I, th I think that just kind of sets up a subgroup of people who just are not that health conscious. Uh, but then it was interesting that people who had a high level of hostility, which is I'm, I'm not doing this volitionally. My doctor's making me lose weight. Like, I, I, you know, this is just, again, not who I am. I don't like it. I'm going into this kicking and screaming. Of course, they're just not going to do well. Uh, but this now, now we get into some of the things that are a little bit more uh, determined by where we are in our lives, but also mindset. So perception of barriers, the person who makes excuses, well, I can't do that because of this. And it's too hard for me. You don't understand. Uh, low knowledge of risk factors, get, again, back to education. Uh, people who are younger don't seem to take it as seriously. So people who might be overweight, but they're already seeing some symptoms of potential heart disease. They're just they're just not forecasting out long enough what some of those risks are. Uh, again, as I said earlier, fewer friends kind of afflicted with this or family members, so they just don't see the gravity of it. And then one that just is very practical, you know, if you have children at home, you just don't quite do as well. You're probably distracted. Your kids are eating chicken nuggets and French fries and you're trying to be, you know, uh, strict on your diet and so forth. We know some of those things don't happen. So, so I, I threw this one in there just to remind us that there are some social contaminants that, that are in our lives that we either can push to the side and negate a little bit, or we can't, you know, we either do it or we don't in those situations. And that's not to say that somebody, you, you know, has, has a stronger will or not. Sometimes these variables stack up high enough that it just becomes very difficult. So there are, there are correlations like that. So uh, this, this cut, this could become endless. I mean, there are so many things that go into weight loss success from the things we control. So I wanted to show just a smattering. Uh, we just got done with a series on inflammation. So histamine reduced diet, kind of an anti-inflammatory diet, um, blah, 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 blah. Um, the effect of, of health education on diet compliance, which came up already, you know, people who just understand it a little bit more integrating gamification, which I think is interesting because uh, 
there was definitely a push toward that in the last 10 or 15 years to gamify things like uh, we even talked about at one point having diet doc dollars like if if you're a client and you lose x amount of weight and you get a diet doc dollar and you get so many dollars and then you can get a free whatever um you know does that help people i don't know i mean it, you know for some people it may but it's such an external thing that it definitely pushes me away a little bit um psychological support which we talked about uh, even in something like you know gluten-free and celiac disease uh, this was very interesting. I really dove deeply into this study, but I didn't include it here. I just wanted to see what it said. Small increments in diet cost can improve compliance with dietary guidelines. This looked at the actual monetary cost of dieting. Uh, healthier food costs this much. Low quality food costs this much. You can afford a nutrition coach or not. You can afford a gym membership or not. Uh, somebody who spends this amount of money on their nutrition plan versus somebody who spends less, like how much does finance play into ultimate success? And it was really, really interesting because they found that yes, when you invest something, when you put some skin in the game, you tend to do better. But the biggest, biggest, biggest benefit was the first step. So if you put any money into it, you just you just buy that one single gym membership or you hire that nutrition coach or you decide I'm going to buy this. I'm going to spend 50 extra bucks a month on my groceries to get this higher quality food that gave you the most return. The more money you spent, it started to become inverse. So then all of a sudden, the more money you're throwing at something, it just shows that you're an idiot, you know, thinking that money is going to buy you health and it's not. But it, it definitely showed that that some investment was important. Uh, this was something that I've often thought about, uh, and, and there's increasing research, healthcare on a wrist. So the wearables, uh, these are interesting things because I see it in my own personal clients locally. Uh, my clients who come in here with Apple watches or Garmin's or Fitbit's and in between sets, you know, I can ask them, what's your heart rate? And they're like, oh, it's 172. And like, we start kind of planning some of our ebbs and flows of the workout around what's happening, like they they start relating it again to the objectivity of what's happening in their body. Um, and of course, they're getting that same kind of data for their sleep time, sleep quality, things like that. Like these, these things have some really good impact. Uh, one of my clients who walks by my in-body, commercial in-body, um, you know, he asked me one day, like, you know, like, and, and he's kind of an alpha guy, a, a high achiever, you know, big, big earner kind of guy. He's like, I need some numbers. Like, I need something to fight for, to fight against. And again, I, I know that type. And a lot of times they achieve well, as they do in other parts of life. And then they they fail well also. They fail miserably because as soon as you slay one dragon, you kind of forget about it. You want to go slay something else. And so it all goes to, to shit again. Uh, but nonetheless, I said, all right, let's get on here. Let's uh, Let's get your BMI. Let's get your body fat percentage, your lean body mass, all that. And it did give that, it did give them a target. So then we could talk about an actual physical goal. Okay, now by by September 1, let's be here. And you could see, you know, the wheels turning and definitely a little sparkle in the eye. So this is truly a potpourri because we, we talk about things like this a lot in, in the Flexible Dieting Institute, especially in our research reviews, uh, ad nauseum. I mean, I've got notes and journals 
from great suggestions from you guys. And I'm actually looking for a notebook right now because I expect you all to have some more good suggestions. But first of all, I'm going to open it up for you to either comment or ask questions on things we went over today. Uh, but in addition, if you think of things we did not cover, like what are other social determinants, behavioral correlates that you could think, you know, hey, this really worked for me. This was a key. This was a big piece of the puzzle when I was going through my journey and, and it really helped me. Or maybe you're a coach and you see some things that work well as you articulate them to clients. I, I really would love to just cover as much as we can in the subject of, you know, what what we can do ourselves or together as a community that that aren't in the in the numbers of you know like how many calories do we eat and this and that. I really want it to be more of the behavioral stuff. So, jump on in. Thoughts or questions or new suggestions? I've got a thought. Yes, ma'am. So that last, uh, the third study, the one with the smokers and the hostile attitudes and the children at home, you know, one of the things that jumped out a little bit to me looking at that list, and I don't know if you want to put that back up again, but um, many of those factors are also mediators of uh, inflammation in the body. In other words, they're increasing it. Mm -hmm. And uh, in particular, anger, you know, this is one of those things um, that Dr. Hanscom and I talk about like all the time. Um, anger is very pro-inflammatory to your brain as well as to your body. And it changes a lot of your physiology. That in and of itself can be a, a reason for increased adiposity to begin with and resistant adiposity as you know, as, as we've talked about in the previous lectures. So I wanted to kind of tie that to the previous inflammation stuff that we've gone through um, and give that a uh, little tidbit out there for people to think about because, um, you know, we may, if we're assessing someone for inflammation and we're talking about gut health and things like that, um, or, you know, arthritis or, you know, other asthma, other inflammatory conditions, you know, just being a cranky, angry cuss is a really big one. And so you might be able to get a little bit of a barometer about this person's underlying inflammatory state just by talking to them for a few minutes and assessing that attitude. Very good suggestion. I was just looking up this study again, because I know I didn't put a lot in there. So like I said, this, these were men, um, I think between like 35 and 55 is in Sweden, originally published in the Department of Clinical Psychology uh, at, at a Swedish university. So um, yeah, and they did it with survey studies. And so they were they were looking at that part of kind of a, their mental attitude toward it. And I, I completely agree. I, I think that's why so many coaches end up talking about behavioral and psychological aspects so much. Um, unless you are a licensed mental health therapist, most of us are not, um, you still end up having those conversations. You know, you're not therapeutically discussing things with clients, but you, you are, you're, you're part of that frontline support system and you definitely discuss these things. And I think more than anything for me, Jen, um, you know, I, I never, waggle my finger in somebody's face and say, you know, you're too negative. You're, you're a mean, right. but you, you, I don't know. You just try to add levity. You try to add life. And 
uh, encouragement to somebody and, you know, hopefully that, that seeps in, but you're, you're hundred percent right. If somebody is just that negative of a person, you, you can see the writing on, on the wall. Yeah. The second thing I wanted to toss in there too, um, and again, not looked at in these studies, but a big thing we see in the chronic pain world is what we call the crab bucket. So, um, and this is something that we see in, in chronic pain. We see this in addiction, but co- it's sort of sometimes people call it codependency. Um, there, it's it's great to have family that supports you. Um, not so great if you have family that sabotages you. And the family is usually supportive initially until the changes start happening. And suddenly, if the family starts to feel worse about themselves and a little bit jealous of the family member who's making strides, um, we can see that start to undercut and they can re- they can get a lot of resistance. And it's really hard. It's a hard coaching thing to dig into. It's um, it's something that the individual affected by it needs to become aware of because, you know, we can't, we can't be interviewing their families and things, um, but it is, it is something to be sensitive to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and just having those conversations, you know, asking clients, you know, do you have good support? Have you asked for support? Um, let me read Stacy's thing here. Um, I mean, these are questions, Stacy. I think w- when we're looking at individual foods or addictive behaviors to food or otherwise, um, I think a lot of times the conversations just come up when, when there is maybe some stagnancy. So if a client isn't Occurring plateaus or lapses, and you you just end up like, hey, let's talk about that. What's what's going on? And um, I don't particularly have a lot of formal recourse with clients where I'm constantly reviewing things like that, where I'm asking about their social lives and mental health lives. It's it's just really part of being a consultant, you know, somebody who is very highly communicative. Um, but you know, maybe Dr. Souders, since you use the word addiction might might jump in there. Uh, Jen, with your work in addiction medicine, how, I mean, how deeply into food addiction do you think it goes when it comes to having to treat that from a psychological model versus just proper good nutrition coaching? Well, I think it's so multifactorial. It's really hard to say. Um, and it's a lot like what you said, Joe, you know, you, you just have to have um, you have to listen. You have to be really a good listener, and you have to listen for the non, uh, not nonverbal, sort of the nonverbal cues. But yeah, again, I think it's um, it's something that is broachable in a conversation. If, um, like you said, somebody is struggling, someone is not checking in, someone is, um, you know, they're they're there's they're plateaued or they're stagnant or they they sound like they're giving up or they feel they express frustration or they do you know they constantly feel like well i'm just too overwhelmed i I just don't think i can deal with this right now you know um and uh then you can you can start to explore it but it really really we have to remember it's coaching you know it's not um it's it's not us sort of prying into behavioral and and family domains. So it is, it is tricky. And I think it's Joe, you've, you've expressed probably the very best way for nutrition coaches to go about it. Um, you know, you, you get a general sense of the person where they are when they start, but then it's, at, it's how they 
how they change and evolve as we move along with people, that starts to give you those clues as to whether you should ask a few different questions. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have anything harder than that. It's so individual. Yeah. So one of the things I would say too, I'll give you an example of a really, really hard client who I think, you know, I, I often have conversations trying to delineate here's, here's where it's a food issue. It's just hunger, physiology, maybe the behavioral aspects of being busy and time. And I, I'm not doing my, you know, meal prep type work versus it's just literal anxiety and dependency on food. And of all the types of addictions I could have, I am using food to self-soothe every emotion. If I'm sad, if I'm anxious, if I'm depressed, it's food, food, food. I mean, then this is where I have to say, okay, look, I'm not a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a therapist, but I've been doing this for 30 years. I've been dieting myself as a physique sport athlete off and on for a long time. And, you know, sometimes you really have to take a step back and take the pressure off of the food performance and work on things that are not food related. So this gets into, I, I would never say, oh, you have a food addiction. I'm diagnosing you. Um, right. It's like, I think, you know, I, I think there are some things here that may not relate to food. Do you have somebody to talk to? Have you worked through this in the past? Um, I don't even want necessarily to try to build strategies for them in that regard. If, if I know they have a true psychological dependency with self-soothing and food, I just say, man, we need to find a way to get you some help. Like dieting and working on this right now may be the worst thing for you, or I can keep helping you on that side, on the health you know, side, but we really need to get some support on the counseling side. I've had those conversations with people, but it takes somebody who really does have a healthy relationship with food. And, and I don't think there's anything that's going to impede, you know, the mental side to, to just keep working on the actual food and behavioral side. Uh, I think that's just conversations we have to have probably more than we do and let clients participate it like jen said and just listen and invite them to give you more information and then i was looking here stacy followed up she said curious with all the reports coming out with the reduced cravings of smoking and alcohol with the patients on the obesity drugs but no reports of it are, are indicating a decline in mood the you know these obesity drugs are neurotransmitter modulators so that's that is a lot of what is behind it I mean, it, it's it's not like an appetite suppressant all by itself. I mean, it really does change um, the neurohormonal milieu in your body. So you're you're changing your body's chemistry, um, and when you change your body's chemistry, your brain chemistry adapts along with it. So a lot of these drugs target receptors that are not just simply in the gut, but they're also in the central nervous system. So um, you know that's that that's a way different topic and i think if you've got someone taking those kind of medications then you're i mean then then you want to know that um you want to know who's who's prescribing that you know and are they um are they being monitored um as far as their health profile you know are they getting their bloods monitored and all these other things um but you know i i, I don't know how many of those folks come for nutritional counseling initially, um, that that's a great question. I don't really know because a lot of the drugs work so well initially by themselves. 
this may be a little bit of a tangent, but it made me think a, a lot of people are on SSRIs. You know, a lot of people just because of depression, anxiety come yeah. with, with a medication or two like that. And I have seen doctors either prescribe it for this reason or assert that it may help with the fact that, Hey, if we can get you out of this loop of depression or anxiety, you'll have a better time eating. You won't overeat, blah, blah, blah. But sometimes those directly impact, um, you know, metabolic processes. And so it can make it physiologically harder to lose weight, even though maybe psychologically it's giving you an edge. So another thing to just, you know, make clients aware of maybe. Any other thoughts or questions? Just uh, little tidbits, tips, tricks on what you guys have done to, to get some winning succession in your own journeys? I have a quick comment. Uh, I, I know I bring up this morbidly obese woman at my gym frequently, but one of the things that I think is key and that so many of us, are, you know, we, we realize that we don't realize it is just how as human beings, we kind of almost entirely lack the ability to be objective because we are experiencing what we're experiencing, but just the belief that you can do something or even the ability to see you where you really are, I think are key things that I see that kind of trap people in the position that they're in. You know, this, if you see yourself as a obese person or like we talked about, was it last week we talked about Lizzo? You know, you, you stop seeing yourself as obese and, and you want to believe that you are a standard of beauty in a certain way, which is not to say that she isn't or you can't be, but you know, at what point do you not see yourself as you really are? And that I think happens a lot with transitions. You know, it takes a long time for your mind to maybe catch up with what your body has done. You know, I, I feel it right now, like even getting leaner, you know, I don't see myself as leaner. Like people tell me I am, but I'm like, no, nah. you know, but I know in reality I am. So I, I think there is a little bit of a lag there where it takes some time to kind of catch up with reality, but helping people see that anything is possible and get out of the thought process that you are your body uh, and that that's all you'll ever be or that you're somehow trapped by a medical condition or something else that's completely preventing you from progress, I think is definitely something that can be beneficial in helping people get past some of those self-sabotage behaviors. Really, really good point. And it, I'm glad you brought this up because I, I have a very fresh uh, take on this. So flexible dieting, macronutrient tracking, that level of objectivity that's where I started in my mid twenties. And that's where our company remains, even though we have explored every single path you possibly can to support that and to make it more of a chronological episodic phenomena, which is like, well, maybe we don't need to track for a while. We need to work on this and then we can come back to it. It's not the right time. Or maybe you've kind of mastered that and you already have that language and those skills. So let's work on these other things. It doesn't have to be the center all the time, but if you lose sight of that objectivity, as you're saying, Amy, it's it, it you've just lost everything. It, and here's my example. A, a local client came to me a year and a half ago to lose weight. I want to lose 20 pounds. And he, he just fell in love with training so much and got so excited about what he was accomplishing in my facility on the training side. Once or twice, he mentioned that he's just not quite losing, but it's okay. Like I've been, I've been working on this instead and I kind of want to lose, but I really like what I'm doing now. Well, this week he said, okay, damn it. I've got to lose weight. Like, I swear, I, I think I'm about five pounds, 10 pounds heavier than I came to see you to lose weight. And even if that's the same body composition, but along the way, whenever he has said, 
I'm not losing. I want to lose. He would always report to me how perfect he's eating. And then this last week, when he finally said, okay, enough's enough. He's like, you know what? Every time I go to Subway, I get a cookie with my sandwich. You know, there's 500 calories, like eating a stick of butter. Uh, and it's boating season. I have a house boat and a 24 foot speed boat and a house on the lake. And, you know, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, I'm drinking 12 beers every single day. And, and, I, and this, and this, and this. And I'm like, wait, wait a second. Where, where, where did Mr. Perfect go? Where, where did Mr. I've been eating, you know, 100% clean go? And so he, he instantly answered his own question, but it came back to that center home base of energy balance. If, if we just don't know, we know we're going to underreport. And uh, as I often tell clients who are even making smaller mistakes, I mean, this guy's eating a lot of calories outside of what we would call a clean, healthy, you know, intentional plan. People who are losing just a little bit, you know, maybe underperforming, as I always say, it's just that one decision every day. It's that one extra little snack. It's that one extra little serving. It's you may be eating 99.9% .9 perfectly high quality food, but we're just getting the amount a little too close to maintenance. And so you don't have the deficit to cause, you know, the, the loss that you want. So good, good, good thoughts there, Amy. Appreciate that. Kevin's making fun of me because he thinks I was shaming him for his social, his extreme introversion. You, you need to be, you need an intervention. We, we need to, we need to all show up at Kevin's house someday and make him enter the public domain. So as I said, next week, uh, we'll, we'll take a break and then we'll jump back in and uh, we'll see what we can dig into. Appreciate you guys. Have a good rest of your afternoon.